Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us in the iTunes algorithms, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and so I'm always appreciative of hearing you guys sharing the show. In this week's episode, we're going to talk through what's known as the knowledge problem which is something that exists when politicians are designing solutions, such as the current COVID-19 relief package that's working its way through Congress right now, as Republicans, Democrats, and the White House are debating back and forth what are the correct parameters that are needed for this phase of a recovery package. So we're going to talk through what's called the knowledge problem. I've got a column coming out on this, and I wanted to sort of expand on some of the thoughts that I'll be writing about in my Monday column on that point. In the second segment, we're going to dive into the latest COVID-19 numbers and going through everything on that front, as well as the continuing good news on the vaccination front. And then, in the light item, we will wrap up with a special Black History Month note on the 369th Regiment, otherwise known as the Harlem Hellfighters, who fought in World War I and in other wars, but we're going to focus in on their contributions in World War I. So, that is the agenda for this week's show, and we'll jump right in. So, as I mentioned at the top, I have a column coming out about this topic, but I really wanted to talk about it and expand on it a bit, too. It's called The Knowledge Problem, and it's described best by the economist and philosopher Friedrich Hayek. And it's when he gets to talking about centralization versus decentralization. So you have central planners who are trying to design systems for everyone versus allowing decentralization to take place and every all these individuals make their own decisions. And so why is it better that decentralized solutions are often better versus more centralized solutions? And he bull, there's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the main ones that he boils it down to is the knowledge problem. And the knowledge that an individual has versus a more generalized knowledge that you have on a big macro level. So he put it like this. This is Friedrich Hayek. He said, Today it is almost heresy to suggest that scientific knowledge is not the sum of all knowledge. But a little reflection will show that there is beyond question a body of very important but unorganized knowledge which cannot possibly be called scientific in the sense of knowledge of general rules, the knowledge of particular circumstances of time and place. It is with respect to this that practically every individual has some advantage over all others because he possesses unique information of which beneficial use might be made, but of which use can be made only if the decisions depending on it are left to him or are made with his active cooperation. So what he's talking about here is the person in an individual setting has knowledge particular with them that only they know, and that if they are allowed to act on it, allows them to act more accurately than a person doing something more generalized. So you get this sort of give and take between a, a big and a small level here. So a, a good a good example is local versus national. You know in your household exactly what everyone needs. You know the food needs, you know the electrical needs, you know the water needs, you know the bills, you know people's schedules, you know what's happening there. So you can say with specificity what is needed in your household. That is very local, 
and that is very common to you. It is not true of other people. Yes, you can generalize and say, well, most households need this. We know everybody needs food. We know everybody needs water. We know electricity. Those sorts of things we know. But some people have food allergies. Some people have specific needs. And so meeting a specific household's needs is going to be particular to them. And you can't do that on a larger level. And in a crisis setting, like a pandemic, your exact needs are going to be a little different from everyone else. Yes, you can generalize and say everyone needs these sorts of things, but you're not going to know what each person needs in a given situation. So in a crisis situation, when everything's sort of thrown out the window, needs shift dramatically. You can try to provide for these generalized things, but people are going to slip through the cracks if you only do a generalized system. So things are always going to differ. And the thing is, and what he is getting here, and Hayek is getting his example here, is talking through jobs. What you do in a local setting is going to be a little bit different than what people are thinking about on a large company-wide basis. The specific position that you hold at your job gives you specialized knowledge for your company to act on on any given point in a given day. Now, you are, of course, given generalized rules, that, and those can be made at the top, that apply to everyone, and they can even have specialized rules that are for a given position at the company. But it's still your knowledge that makes that run and gets everyone to take certain actions and do certain things. So it's this individual versus the larger collective or the larger collective need. There's a difference between planning for one and planning for the other. And for a politician, you're always going to be building a program for that specialized whole, that whole group of a country. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to come down to an individualized basis and say, we're going to do something individual for everyone, just because the resources are finite and you have to divvy this up the best way that you can. And so you're looking for groups of people that you can benefit through things. So that is why you don't get these full, when you have these programs that are set up to do certain things, they're often set up to help certain people over others. And these are all generalized. And that's the way they think, because that's the only way you really can think. So let's broaden this out a little bit. Hayek also said the following. He said, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. It's one of my favorite quotes by him. It goes on, but the first sentence is one of my favorites. He said, The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know of what they imagine they can design. We constantly know less than we really do, and what we, and what we can design is always going to be, you know, we can't design what we, what we think we can't. He continues on and says, the naive To the naive mind that can conceive of order only as the product of deliberate arrangement, it may seem absurd that in complex conditions, order or an adaptation to the unknown can be achieved more effectively by decentralizing decisions and that a division of authority will actually extend to the possibility of overall order. Yet that decentralization actually leads to more information being taken into account. So what he's getting at here is that if you believe that order and you know hierarchy and all these things, if you think that the only way that these things happen is through deliberation and the and a society setting out what they're going to do through a top-down approach, then you would never trust people to make thousands of individual decisions that would end up going up from the bottom up to create a hierarchy for the whole. But that's exactly what happens in everyday life. We know it happens through things like basic economic forces like prices. People barter back and forth. There are all these decisions that going into a specific product or a specific need, and people decide upon a price. Those are prices are going to move on a day-to-day basis, year-to-year basis, on thousands of pieces of information that governments cannot take into place. And that kind of decentralization goes on and on in, you know, in households across the country. And one of the things that we have experienced during this pandemic is that we've experienced a lot of information coming out from the top down, telling everyone what they need to do in every last single situation and not trusting people to make a decision in their given circumstances. 
And so if you don't have those authority figures, people, especially on the left, they view that as a failure because people are not, quote-unquote, doing what the authorities are saying. But if you view people as needing just to be given information, to be able to use that information in their lives to protect themselves and make their family healthier, then what you should see is that you need to send out decentralized information more instead of getting people to all do the same thing. It's sort of a way of seeing how things move. And we know this happened in real life. So in March and April, before any lockdown orders really went in place and states were in lockdown, restaurants were shut down, before those orders started going out, if you looked at the economic data, about a week or two before any of that happened, all of a sudden, walk-in sales at places like restaurants, theaters, and more, all of those types of things fell off of a cliff people stopped going out because they viewed it, they saw the information that was given to them, and all of a sudden, economic activity died. No government ordered any of this. People made their own individualized decisions. They looked at what the, the information they had, and they said, we're not going out this week. And similar things are happening now. There are, you know, there are places that are they're completely open right now, but people are not going to them. Movie theaters are a great example. Movie theaters are open. You can go to them, but people are not going to them. People have a knowledge of what's out there, and they're saying, this is not safe enough for me. And sometimes some people are, but that is a decision unto them. And so that is how decentralization this works. You see people all taking the same actions if they're giving the information. What a top-down approach looks like is more what I've written many columns about now, where people, like, Anthony Fauci and others have dictated or even lied in some situations trying to manipulate public behavior. They haven't given out information. They've tried to dictate what people know to get them to do something. Instead of just giving people a full level of what's there, they've tried to dictate what's happened from the top down. And as the time has gone on, you've seen people not bother to do that because they know they don't have full information, and so they're not obeying it. And so it's been this interesting dynamic here where you've seen public health officials try to design ways to communicate that manipulates public behavior. But if you just communicate to people, this is what we know, this is how you stay safe, if you do these things, you do this, people act on that and you end up achieving better results in the end. And so that's sort of just talking about in general. So... All of this is a really a wordy way of saying that it's foolish to think you can design something for everyone. But that is precisely what's happening, not just in you know what's happening with COVID-19, with Fauci and others saying that. It's also happening when you're trying to design large government programs. You have technocrats, they will build and design these unwieldy agencies that are aimed, nobly enough, at helping people. But those programs are going to suffer from the same knowledge issues that we have here, that we have in all these other situations. You're trying to help people on an individual level with a generalized solution. And it just doesn't work across the board. And so right now, when I'm looking at the COVID-19 relief packages, I'm seeing a lot of the same things. And this is what I'm writing my column about. There's two specific things here. You have Democrats pushing for uh, raising the minimum wage, $15, And then the second one, you have Republicans and Democrats complaining about sending out more relief checks. Uh, The debate is whether or not you send out $2,000 or you send out $1,400, and then you claim that that $1,400 with the $600 gets you to $2,000. I don't actually think that's meeting the promise of $2,000 checks, but that's what what they're debating in Congress, which kind of shows you how out of touch they are if you spend a campaign promising Two grand, and you saying, "Well, fourteen hundred dollars is technically two grand." People are not going to take you seriously. That's another debate entirely. In any event, these are the two things: you have the minimum wage, and then you have should we send out more relief checks, and if we do, should we target those relief checks? Now, the minimum wage is a very much a generalized policy where you're trying to do the same thing for everyone. Everyone, at a minimum, gets $15 an hour. And when you're talking about this, you're not talking about something that is only a benefit and has no drawbacks. Thomas Sowell, the, the economist, he, he famously said, when you're talking about things like this, you're never talking about only benefits. It's always trade-offs. 
You're choosing one set of trade-offs for another. There's always going to be a negative side to these things. And for raising the minimum wage, yes, you will you will unquestionably help a, a small subset of the workforce that will get a higher wage. At the same time, you're going to bring great harm and costs to businesses who are going to shift. They may have to cut giving benefits to these same employees and turning it into cash. They may not be able to pay you know, benefits. They may be able to give benefits if they're doing the current minimum wage, but they may not be able to do it if they're doing $15 because you're effectively doubling that number if you're paying minimum wage. You may end up decreasing. So businesses may say, well, we're, if we can pay, we can do the $15 an hour, but we cannot do it with as many hours worked. So instead of doing a 40-hour week, you're only going to be working 20 hours this week because that's all we can afford to do. So workers may end up losing workable hours. You may end up decreasing benefits. You may end up decreasing the types of perks that you get in a workplace. Workplaces may not be able to afford you know, a certain safety. There's all kinds of trade-offs that happen here that aren't purely empirical. And it always happens when you start seeing this happen in these, in these states that raise it. You see these trade-offs start taking place. I'm not saying that one set of trade-offs is worse than the other, just that they occur and the thing about having this kind of debate now, when you're trying to set this kind of policy on high, is you also have to take into account where we are right now. Because we are trying right now to do this type of thing in the middle of a pandemic. You're talking about increasing costs to businesses in a time when they're trying to survive. This is not a time when you're trying to increase costs on them. Right now, we're just trying to save certain sectors of the economy because they flat out cannot survive otherwise. So that's the first part here. You're, you're increasing the costs on these businesses at a time when they're in the middle of a pandemic. And I get the rejoinder that some people would say here, well, you know, this would be phased in over time. They would have time to adapt. They wouldn't have to do this immediately. But in reality, if you're one of these businesses, I know for a fact the airline sector has said it, they're going to take the better part of a decade for them to build, to drag themselves out of the hole that's been dug for them from this pandemic. And that's just one industry. If you're looking at some of these others, restaurants, events, and those types of businesses where there's literally no way for them to make up the the kinds of money that they would normally make. If you're, if you're so... You know, I live in Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. There's a lot of tourist activity. There's a lot of events. There's you know honky tonks and those types of things. There is no way to make up those kinds of you know that type type of economic activity for something like you know an automotive dealer. People may put off their purchase of a car, but they're eventually going to come back around and purchase that car. Some of these things are just delayed for a time. But other things, if you're, if you're a place that depends on events and people coming into restaurants and things like that, you cannot make up that business. It is something that didn't happen and is not going to come back to you. There's not going to be a surge where people put it off and come back to it. You're just going to end up opening up and just, there's just going to be this black hole right there in that period of time. So you just lost that ability to make money over that period of time. And so if you're facing that kind of hole and deficit in your budget and you're looking forward and saying, well, it's going to take you know, probably a few years for us to dig out of this, and at the end of that, we're already going to be hit with another hammer in the form of an increase in wage, it's just another variable that could end up sinking you before it even gets here because you know full well that by the time you get there, you're not going to be able to survive that kind of increase. So that's just one. Out of this, out of this policy, you have this knowledge problem here, where they're choosing one set of variables because they're saying that we have enough knowledge to make to be okay here, even though we have no knowledge of what the downstream effects are going to be in a lot of these individual circumstances. And when you're already talking about, you know, we've seen already two to three million jobs lost permanently because businesses have gone other under because of COVID nineteen, that could potentially create even more. The other side of this, though comes from Republicans and even some Democrats here, but it's really a Republican push here where they're wanting to target relief, specifically these checks. They want to be able to say, well, right now we're saying some people are getting this, but not everyone really needs one of these checks. If you make a sufficient amount of money, you don't actually need these checks, and we should target this relief more towards the people who, quote-unquote, actually need it. 
And the problem is the way we've been determining, quote-unquote, who needs it are uh, the previous year's tax returns. So we're using the 2019 tax returns, pre-pandemic, to choose who gets current 2020 and 2021 relief. Now, people are obviously filing tax returns now, so you might have a more updated picture as you move forward a little bit here. But still, you're still using a tax return for people who have maybe lost their jobs during this period of time or their business has been shuttered due to the government lockdowns. There's all kinds of variables that have come in here that, that basically will tell you we don't actually know what's happening and we there, there's no way a tax return of any kind can tell you exactly what is happening here. We know there are just a slew of unknowns. And so when you're using these income levels here to decide, okay, well, this person, well, you know, their, their tax returns say that they're worth this. They don't actually need that. So we don't give them the aid. You don't actually you know what's happening there. Uh, ironically enough, if you are more of a blue-collar worker and you've had to work in a lot of these quote-unquote essential areas, it is more likely that you've seen your job largely uninterrupted during this period of time, whereas if you're some of these other industries that have been flat-out shut down because you're not essential, all of a sudden if you are making more in a previous year, all of a sudden you're down to zero. So there are all kinds of variables here that change how we view who needs it and who doesn't. And that's why... We sent out blank checks to begin with because we were saying we don't know who needs it. We know there's going to be some wasteful spending here for people who don't need this at all, but it is impossible for us to find those people in a more accurate way. So we're just going to pump cash into the economy and help everyone out and get everyone to buy in on the same program of trying to push through this pandemic together. Saying you can target people with these checks it, that's just impossible. You're, again, choosing one set of trade-offs for another and claiming pe- you're helping some people and you're saving money by not sending it to the quote-unquote rich. And you're not saving money at all. You have a knowledge problem. You can't say any of that for a fact. This is not stimulus. And and frankly, people aren't treating this money as stimulus either. This is, People keep calling these stimulus checks, but that is not what's happening with them. I've written a couple of things talking about how, how debt has gone down and people are using this to pay off rent and other things. And the Wall Street Journal reports that that is still happening with the latest round. It, it definitely happened with the first round of checks. It's it's happened again with this last round. So this was from a Wall Street Journal report. They said that most adults who reported receiving the second stimulus check, which was $600, issued around the new year, used them to pay household expenses, including utilities and telecom payments, according to recent data from the U.S. Census. Uses for the stimulus payments varied by age group. About 54% of people between the ages of 25 and 39 reported on the census survey that they mostly used the stimulus money to pay off debt, and 26% said they mostly saved it during the January 6th through 18th period. By comparison, about 57% of the people ages between the ages of 40 and 54 said they mostly paid off debt, and 22% said they mostly used it. So you've got most of the American public here using this to keep out of debt and pay off that month's expenses, which is probably what you need when you're trying to get people to survive. So that's on this latest round. It was true in the first round. It's true in this in the second round. And after the $1,200 one, there was a report that credit card debt showed a noticeable drop. So people were using this to stay ahead. There were not delinquencies we weren't seeing the types of evictions that we feared. So this was going towards the sort of things. And the thing about about the knowledge, the knowledge gap here, the reason why this direct cash was better is that to achieve all, if you weren't going to do that, you would have to set up separate programs. You'd have to say, well, if you need pro, if you need help getting with your rent, you should apply for this program. If you're struggling with your credit card debt, please apply to this program. If you need it for food, energy, or some of these other things, please apply to this program. Just because you're trying to cover all these bases, and in the end, you probably would miss some because some people wouldn't have the cash to deal with some odd thing that popped up that that popped up that month. And in the end, if you just give people this cash, they end up saying, "Well, I need it for this, and I need it for this." And so everyone sort of caters this to their specific situation because they are the ones with that localized knowledge to make these unique choices for themselves. You have to trust people to do the right things for them. Not not everyone did. I'm sure there's people who blew it on some type of gift for themselves, as is their right. They can do that. 
But if you needed this for something else, it was there for you, and you can make that decision. And we should trust people to do that. And if it's showing up in the aggregate data like this, that means that more people are making the right choices than not. And when you see on social media people posting, well, you know, I blew my money on this and I blew my money on that, that is the minority. Most people are being responsible here, and that's what you want to see. And that should give you a better feeling for going forward that Americans are making the right choices moving forward. So these direct cash infusions are unquestionably better on this front because it's a generalized policy. You're, you're choosing, you know, a block number here, 600, 1,200, 2,000, whatever your number, what your number to be. Everyone gets this because at a bare minimum, we can do that for everyone. And then people are saying, okay, we've got that. Now we can turn around and say, this is how this is going to improve my life to deal with this pandemic. It's not like unemployment where, you're, where you, you, know, you have to be unemployed. You could be employed and you still be hurting because of the pandemics that hurt you in other ways. You could. It's, it's not like you know food stamps or anything else where you're having to apply to some kind of welfare program. Everybody gets it and everyone's able to make their own choices. And that is far better in dealing with these situations than anything else. But, you know, as you can see, if you're listening to these debates, politicians do assert otherwise, including Republicans, including some Republicans who I know have read Hayek, and they know the same thing, but they're do, they're making the same mistake that you see centralized planners do. They're, they're asserting that they can tailor a policy just enough to help just the people who just need it and not anyone else. But that's an impossible case. I mean, and for years, Republicans have talked about, well, we can have welfare benefits, but we need to have these work things where people need to prove that they've, they're working and then we'll give it to them. And this will help, you know, cut off any people who are just using it wastefully. Well, sure, you could do that, but you're still doing the same thing. You're dealing with a knowledge gap here where you don't actually have the information to deal with each one of these individualized situations. And in fact, what you end up doing is you end up creating a whole new class of of lawyers, people like me, who go in and have to help people get around some of these requirements to get their, their benefits back because the system has unfairly cut them off for one reason or another. You just end up creating more headaches for everyone, and people have to end up fighting the system instead of just trusting people. Because when you do things like that, what you are inherently saying, and what the government is inherently saying, is that we do not trust you with a benefit program. You likely don't need it, and we're going to make it as hard as possible to get it to you. That shows a distrust between the government and its people, and that is not a good place for either party to be. That is, you need to be to give people what they need and then trust them to do it. Are people going to abuse it and do the wrong thing? Absolutely. But on some level, that is their right to do that. And you still are, even in the, in the aggregate, you have to say, well, more people are doing the right thing than not. And it is better that we do that than to increase the size of government to try and fight this form of, you know, fraud or waste that is occurring because you don't want to increase the size of government just to deal with these programs that are inefficient as is. So that's the knowledge problem in a nutshell. Policymakers on both sides of the aisle, they don't have the knowledge to be able to make these kinds of cutoffs because you know, you're always you're always picking one trade-off over another here. And so even with the direct cash infusions, there, there's going to be trade-offs to that. It's not a perfect thing. It just allows people to more finely tune what that what they are going to get out of this for themselves instead of being dictated to them what they're going to get. That is the difference there. So, you know, as you're watching the ongoing COVID-19 relief bills, always ask, where does this knowledge issue come in for these relief packages? How can we make things better to better empower people to gain more ground using that localized knowledge to use more decentralization? Because these kinds of decisions require trusting people more instead of always assuming the worst in people. Because if you're always assuming the worst in people, then you're trying to you're always assuming that for some everyone's trying to game and fraud the system. And if that's true, then it's not really a beneficial program anymore. So try to trust people more, decentralize things, and let people make the decisions with their own money. I think that's the most important lesson coming out of this pandemic, is that distrust of people has led to more centralization of power, and it has 
worsened our outcomes because of this distrust. And, and that's happened on both sides of the aisle. You've seen it with Democrats and the Republicans, each in their own unique ways. And it's something we need to fix moving forward because we have to be able to respond to these pandemics better in the future. And we also want to be able to have better government programs in the future. So that's all on that subject for this week. We're going to take a quick break here. And when I get back, we'll do the COVID-19 update section. So overall, in the COVID update thing, the big picture this week is that the data coming in this week was a little on the weak side, and that's mainly because there was a snowstorm in the eastern part of the United States, and generally any place that had elevation in the east of the Mississippi, they had some kind of snow totals, and that really messed up how much data we were getting in this week. It slowed down everything from vaccinations, testing, death reporting, and more. There were some days where you saw some states dump a lot of information all at once, and which led to some quote-unquote record numbers, when in reality, if you kind of looked at it, there were days prior to that where numbers were far too low based on where they were. So it just what you saw was that there was a slowdown early in the week, and then everyone started catching up and then dumping backlog stuff for the rest of the week. It's like in Tennessee, we had a record day for deaths one day, but things were lower before that. So that kind of told me, okay, there's some backlogs in some counties where some things got stacked up on the snow days. There were some counties that just had their health centers shut down. So there was a lot of things happening due to weather this week. I know, I know that was happening in the northeast, too. There was a, a place in, I was talking to some people from New Jersey this week, and one place had had 10 inches. And they, they, they're just like, well, you're, you're outside the city. Basically, you, your streets, you, they were just full of snow. You couldn't go anywhere. I know that was true in other places as well. So there was just a lot of weather impacts this week. I saw, and the reason I bring that up is that there were people on Facebook I saw were freaking out saying, oh, you know, testing are just too low. Why have we stopped testing? Why the number so low? Why are we not growing on vaccination? Just it was pretty clear in social media that some people didn't know what they were talking about. And if you were following sort of the overall picture, it was very clear that weather was the impact. And once that cleared up, things started reverting to normal. So to start off, and you can tell this happened, especially in the averages. So testing did dip a bit this week in the seven-day averages. We were sitting around 1.6 million tests a day this week instead of the normal 1 1.8, 1.9 range. So there was about two to 400,000 tests that were lowered due to weather, again, mostly snow. Things rebounded later in the week, and I expect that we will see that happen again over this next week, barring you know you have some other freak weather. And I know the models have said that there could be some really harsh winter weather this next week. So keep an eye on that. Weather is a, especially winter weather, can really impact broad swaths of the United States on how we report this stuff. Uh, the percentage of tests coming back as positive, though, that continues to drop. Even with the lowered numbers of tests that we were seeing, Johns Hopkins University shows the positivity rate at 7.2% this week, which is down from 8.2% last week, and that is also down from the more than 13% numbers that we were seeing at the beginning of the year. So we have cut that number almost in half in the span of about a month here. And during the non-surge time, so you're talking after the spring surge, after the summer surge, and the, the in-between times that we had there, the positivity rate bottomed out in around the 4.5 to 5.5% range. So we're at 7.2 right now. So we are we are getting really close to hitting what we would consider just a normal lull in this virus. And I think if we continue to see, continue to see I should say, if we continue to see that positivity rate drop, especially below 6%, I think at that point, that would be a good time to declare that the winter surge is officially over on the new cases front and that we are entering another in-between stage with the virus, that the surge is over and we're working through backlogs. Even once we hit that that, that stage with new cases, You'll still see hospitalizations be and deaths be elevated, but those take time because those are delayed indicators. And it, along with those numbers, I know that's also true because the new cases per day continue to drop off a cliff. The seven-day average right now for new cases sits below 130,000 and is continuing to fall every day. Sometime either this week or next, we're probably going to see the new daily cases fall below 100,000 in the averages, which is going to be a very good thing. Sunday, 
was a day when we reported only 96,000 total new cases that, on Sunday, and that was the lowest number we've seen since almost before the fall. We've mostly been about, no matter, your weekends are your lower reported days, but even on the weekends, we've always been 100, in the 125 to 130,000 range. And so to see, you know, a low day on a weekend drop below 100,000, that is a big mark. But it'll obviously be above that once we see things come in for this next week. But if that seven-day averages start dropping even more, you're probably going to see us potentially by the end of the week, probably more though in two weeks, you're going to see us fall below that 100,000 mark. And that is going to be a very, very good piece of news. So... I wouldn't take that 96,000 too seriously right now, but it is a good sign. And remember, the seven-day averages for new cases in a single day, they peaked at around 250,000. So we've nearly cut that number in half with us being around 130,000 now. It is a, it's a very stunning turnaround when you're looking at that, that drop in the span of about a month. And all data points continue to say that the things are heading in the right direction and they're going to continue heading that way too hospitalizations continue to drop rapidly after hovering around 130 to 132,000 around from the January 8th through 12th range hospitalizations have now dropped to 81 and a half thousand meaning we've cut about 50,000 hospitalizations off of those charts which is a huge victory and a huge relief off of the hospital system 50,000 people and that's just you know that's 50,000 free beds that's that's a lot of people who are no longer in there. Now, of course, that also means that a lot of people have died in that period of time, but it all, we're not refilling those beds. That's what was happening there for a while, where we were refilling those beds as fast as we were emptying them. So we're sitting at just over 81,000. That means we're about 20,000 hospitalizations away from being at the high points of the 2020 spring and summer surges. So in the spring... And in the summer, hospitalizations peaked at about 60,000. So we're still much higher than that point, but we are headed down. So at some point in the next two weeks, you're probably going to see us fall below that number. And that's going to be a very key mark because that means we're going to be falling not just below the highs of this time, but the highs of the previous surges. And that is going to signal a very good moment when we will finally start seeing, I believe at that point, deaths seriously start to come down. So we're good places on new cases and hospitalizations. Those are good things. The winter surge, this latest surge, has been the deadliest for for us, and it continues to be that. The the seven-day average on deaths remains just as high as it was last week. We're hovering in and around 3,100 to 3,200 deaths in a given day. If you're looking only at the national data this week, there was a surge in on one day from this past week that suggested we had a one-day high of more than 5,000 deaths in a single day, which is not true. And anyone saying that doesn't understand what happened here. It, we did have more deaths, but it just wasn't in one day. What happened is that Indiana did an audit of their 2020 and 2021 COVID deaths. And through that audit, they found that they had about 1,500 more people who died and so they added them all into the system on that day, which threw the national averages off a little bit. But even if you account for that, we're still we still nothing has truly really changed here because everything is still the deaths are going to remain elevated until we work through this entire backlog of of, of deaths of, of hospitalizations, I should say. And I, I would not expect those deaths to seriously come down from that three thousand mark until we get well under the 80,000 mark and are closer to that 60,000 mark. Once we get to 60,000, I suspect you will start seeing the death rate climb down from 3,000 to around 2, and then it should slowly come down after that, just as we have saw it came, come down during the previous peaks. So those are the good things there. You're you're seeing some indications that we're coming to the end of this very high death mark here just because of the other numbers are coming down. Deaths are the most are, are the most lagging indicator of all. They they're going to lag everything else. So by the time these other two just kind of work through, you see hospitalizations work through and new cases drop down, that is when you're going to see deaths climb down from their highs and sort of fall down here. And the question is, can we get them to fall almost down to the bottom and bottom out from other peaks just because we're going to have vaccinations in play here? So those are the main metrics that we've been covering through this entire time. They are all good. Deaths are going to remain elevated, though. 
I tend to think they're not going to climb down until we we get to those 60,000 marks. So keep an eye on that. After we see another about 20,000 hospitalizations come off the rolls, that should be when we start seeing some relief on the deaths front. Uh, On the vaccination front, there's very good news. So despite the snow slowing down numbers early in the week, we really closed strong. I believe it was Friday. We had our very first day where we, vac- we we handed out and administered 2.1 million vaccination doses in a single day. That is a one-day high. That is a phenomenal one-day total. And we are slowly inching closer here to hitting that 3 million vaccinations in a day goal. That needs to be our true goal, 3 million in a day. And that needs to be 3 million in the averages. That's what we need to be at. So right now, the seven-day average for vaccinations is half of that. We're sitting at 1.5 million, just below that, 1.46. So rounding up, it's 1.5. And earlier in the week, this number had totally plateaued. It wasn't moving at all. It was around the 1.3 range, and that was totally due to weather. And it started growing later in the week. So once that weather cleared up, vaccination spiked again. So that's kind of why I know weather was the impact here, because it wasn't like testing just dramatically dropped by itself. Every every data point dropped, and so that suggests an an external event like weather. So overall, we've administered 42 million vaccination doses across the United States since Christmas, and if uh, we didn't improve any more on this front, if we stayed at our current track at 1.5 million a day, it would take 10 months to hit 75% of the country with a vaccination dose. And I would, I would not look at 75% as being the goal. I think we're going to see very market improvement once, as we get closer to 60%. I think that you're going to start seeing our true normalization at that point. Um, but it would take about 10 months to do 75% of the country. Of that 42 million who have a vaccination dose, 32.1 million have had one dose, and 9.43 million have had two doses. So overall, we have used 71% of the available doses, which means now it is actually more likely that we're going to see some supply issues because we are actually beginning, we, you know, we're, we've steadily improved how many doses we're handing out in a given day. And as we've improved our capacity to get these doses out the door, now it's more likely that we will likely hit supply and not distribution issues. But even with all of that, we are still making progress. And so that, that's why I said early on, if you're going to argue that this rollout was a failure, then I need to know what you're comparing it to. Because the only true failure right now in the vaccine rollout is happening in the, United, in, in the European Union, I should say. They are an absolute and abject failure. And the rollout in the rest of the world is a failure because they don't have access to it like we do. So the United States is, is the best on this by just a mile the best country is going to be Israel, and they have much more, they have better circumstances to deal with than we do. They are a small, dense country, and so they're able to really vaccinate quickly. We should be doing the same thing like they are, but they are also, they are probably the best country, but when you're talking about a full-blown country like the United States, we are clearly the best at this. And the United, the European Union, which is the only thing you can really compare to us, it's really them, China, Russia, we are far and away better than anything that they've got. So, ironically, it's possible that because the European Union can't get its act together, it's possible the United Kingdom will be nearing herd immunity with its vaccination protocols before you see the European Union ever get its act together. One of the untold Brexit benefits right now that's playing out very quietly, I I might add, is that the European Union is actually kind of dependent on the United Kingdom for vaccinations. And they're complaining about the UK on this front. And so this sort of, if the roles were reversed here, if the UK didn't have a vaccination and was dependent on the EU, people would be blasting Brexit. But because the roles are reversed here, Ironically enough, Brexit is kind of helping the UK out on this front because they can dictate terms on their vaccinations, and they are. And it's kind of interesting to see that's playing out very quietly, and those critics of Brexit have gotten really quiet over there because this has been a just a straight-up benefit for the UK. So we're improving on the daily vaccination rates practically every day. 
which is not something you would say about a vaccine rollout disaster. Now, are there things you can prove? Oh, absolutely. There are all kinds of things you can prove. But calling it the disaster that the Biden administration did is just a flat-out mistake. So all in all, things are trending in the right direction. Uh, the new things happening this past week are that Johnson & Johnson applied for their emergency use approval, which I've written and talked about some. Uh, the FDA said they'd have a meeting on it by the end of February. We have two potential vaccines being held up in the FDA's processes right now, AstraZeneca and now Johnson & Johnson. Normally, this process could take up to six months. They've managed to shorten this up to about a month, but we really need to improve on that. Uh, the AstraZeneca request has already been held up at the FDA for well over a month. They really need to get these vaccinations out. And the Biden administration really needs to lean on them because two vaccinations is simply not enough. We need more. We need these two new vaccinations from AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson. We need them getting it into people's arms. ASAP. And the longer the FDA delays, the more we allow these new variants to take hold and become dominant. Of the vaccines, AstraZeneca does appear to be the weakest of them just in dealing with the variants, but it still reduces the, th the threats of severe cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, all of which are good signs. And if we reduce COVID-19 to nothing more than bad cold or a mild case of the flu, then just frankly, we've won. If, if we reduce it to that, then we have won. If, things, if this thing can no longer spread and kill like it has been, then we've just absolutely won. And if we can make it not be a burden on the healthcare system, we are in good shape. So that should be our goals in the coming days and weeks. We really need the FDA to approve the new vaccines. The Biden administration needs to lean on the FDA to do its job and get this done faster. Media journalists should be leaning on the Biden administration and pressuring them to do their job on this front because the Trump administration did this. They leaned on the FDA and said, you guys need to improve this faster or we're going to fire people. And it worked. They got their approval. The Biden administration needs to do the same thing here. And I do not take seriously the criticism, because I got some of this pushback this week on a tweet, that if you have politicians do this, that is going to create skepticism and mean people don't get the virus. That's simply not true. It didn't happen with Pfizer or Moderna. It's not going to happen if this, this, this happens with the new ones either. That is not something that is a real critique and something that's going to happen. Because the people who are rejecting the vaccines, they're rejecting them for any reason that they could find. And so you can pretty much ignore whatever rationale that they're putting up because it, it, it doesn't matter what you're going to say here. So doing something for the sake of them is not going to change things. So you need to do something for the sake of getting as many people vaccinated as possible to reduce spread so we can have a fully reopened and normalized economy again. One last gripe here that I've had from the, from the Biden administration is that their communication on COVID-19 has been utterly abysmal. It's just been flat out awful because one of the things they're doing that is angering people and confusing people is that they're saying uncritically that after you get the vaccination, well, you, could still you should still continue to mask, wash your hands, and do more things like that. And this is just sloppy communications because that is not what the science says on this. Yes, you should continue to wash your hands and wear a mask immediately after you get a vaccination. You should continue to do that. Immediately after you get that vaccination, you should continue to act like you don't have one because you have to give the human body time to build up immunity and become adapted to that vaccine. It does not happen the moment that you get it. It doesn't happen within the first few days that you get it. You really need to give it a minimum of two weeks, ideally closer to four weeks, to really let that vaccine build up in your system. And uh, the Johnson & Johnson is, is the best example here because it's the one I've been focused on reading the most about. They get that 66 and 75% efficacy number from the fact that people still got the virus after 14 to 28 days. What that tells you is that you still some people didn't have a chance to build up full immunity. That does not mean that the vaccine didn't work. Because what they found is that in people 
who got the vaccine and didn't get the virus in that 14 to 28 days, after it was about, it was close to the 60-day mark, after 59, 58, 59 days, they didn't find a single instance of the virus in anyone who had had the vaccine. So you have to give your body time to build up that immunity. Now, if it's something that you want fast, then probably what you need to do is get the vaccine. After about a week, go get the antibody test, see if you got the antibodies, and just kind of test your way through that and see if you can do it that way. That would be expensive. I wouldn't recommend it because you'd be eating up resources. But if you wanted to do it, you could do it that way. But the reason that you need to continue wearing a mask, washing your hands, so on and so forth, the reason you're doing that is because... You have to give your body that time. The Biden administration is not saying this. They're just saying keep wearing your mask, wash your hands, etc. That's not what the science says. You have to do this to give your body that chance to build up that immunity. So that's what you've got to focus on. You get the vaccine, then you allow it to build up that immunity. So that is the big thing. There's many things they're messing up. That is the big thing this week that they've really messed up in their communications and they really need to correct. Because if people read this as... You still can't do all these things even after a vaccination, then they're not going to care one way or the other. If the vaccination doesn't make life go back to normal, people are not going to care whether they get the virus or whether they get the vaccine. So you've got to emphasize here there is a true benefit to getting the vaccine, which is ending all this. It's just you have to be cautious and give your body a chance to build that immunity. They are being very sloppy in their communications here, and it needs to be corrected because it could have uh, long term harms here if when people if people don't take it seriously. So that's the other that's that's one thing. The other thing is that they're 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 basically shooting down their own CDC director on reopening schools. I'm trying to imagine actually what would happen here even during the Trump years. During this, if the CDC director said the science says do A, B, and C and then said that and then the Trump White House Walked it back and said, "Well, that CDC director was speaking only in their personal, uh, only in their with their personal voice, not with the backing of the CDC." And there'd be an outcry about that, and understandably so. But that's exactly what happened this past week with the Biden administration when the CDC director went came out and said, as anyone with any knowledge of this topic would say, that schools should be reopened because there's no evidence that schools are a spreader event and we're not seeing them as a cause of spreading the virus through these communities. And so schools should be reopened because the benefits outweigh the cons in this place. And that statement that she made was 100% true, completely and totally true, backed up by every shred of evidence that exists. So when the Biden administration comes out again and says, well, she's just speaking in her own personal capacity, we don't recommend this. What they're saying is we're bowing to school unions and we're not going with the science here. So that's another way. You know, people said that they wanted a, a better person in charge of this entire thing. What we realized is that they are not doing that. This is the Trump administration had their faults with the communications the Biden administration is doing the exact same thing here, and they're not getting called down on the floor on it, and they should be. They need to be called out now on AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, too. So there's all kinds of ways that you could question the Biden administration on how they're failing certain key aspects here and how they need to improve. So that that's all for this week, though. That's the COVID-19 update. There are I could probably go off for another hour on different ways that the Biden administration so far has, has failed in communicating things people need to do, but... That is the update for this week. With that, though, we're going to jump into the light item. I mentioned at the top, it is a Black History Month thing. So February is Black History Month, and it's a good thing to remember and to explore history. To that end, there is a really good project called Black History in Two Minutes. It's a project for the social media generation meant to provide you know these quick history clips to educate people of all races and colors, and it's headed up by people like Henry Louis Gates Jr., a professor at Harvard. And the clip I'm about to play is one that they put together last year around this time. And it's when they highlighted the unfortunately now forgotten World War I Regiment, the 369th Regiment, known as the Harlem Hellfighters. Well, I'm highlighting this for two reasons. And the first is I think it's important to remember regiments like this one. The, the post-World War I era really helped arm and train a new generation of blacks in America, which really shifted the dynamics of racism in America. Because when you have armed a group of people and trained them and treated them and awarded them as equals in a war, they're going to come back 
from these foreign countries, from these wars, change. They're going to view things differently. And that was very true in America as we entered that post-World War I era. You saw far more clashes, far more armed clashes, as people came back from war, did not like how they were treated, and they had the training to do something about it. And so it's very it's very important to go back to that era to look at what happened there and, and look at what happened after that. But it's also important to go back, I think, and also study World War I itself, the, the Great War, as it was known, because it is too easily forgotten, and it is far more important than World War II. And then there's a lot of reasons why I think it's forgotten. I think the main one is that, for one, it's further away, and the parents of the baby boomer generation, they all fought in the Second World War, so it was more important to them, as they entered the mass media age, to honor their parents who fought in World War II. You also have more clear good guys versus bad guys dynamics in the World War II thing. Mass media plays a bigger role in this. There's World War One is far harder to figure out on that front, but it's also the more important one because you don't have if you don't have that when you you don't have World War Two happen the way it did. You don't have all the dynamics of the Cold War play out, all the seeds for you know socialism and communism taking over Russia and sweeping through Europe and impacting people. All you know fascism growing, all the seeds for that were laid in World War One and all of the just the fallout from that one and so. Understanding that war in particular will help us better avoid similar complex conflicts in the future. Uh, aside from this clip, um, Black History in Two Minutes, and I'm going to link to them. You should absolutely go support them. The other one I would recommend is The Great War on YouTube. It is a series that goes through the World War I conflict in great detail. I'll link to both of them in the show notes. But without further ado, here is Black History in Two Minutes on the Harlem Hellfighters, so make sure to check them out on social media. One of the most decorated units during World War I was the Black Regiment known as the Harlem Hellfighters, a nickname given to the Army's 369th Infantry Regiment. After years of petitioning the governor of New York, African Americans were granted their own unit within the New York National Guard, since the Guard was segregated. In January of 1918, two years after finally being given their own unit, they landed in France and immediately made their mark, distinguishing themselves not only by their bravery, but also by their musical talents. The moment they step off the ship, the regimental band begins to play the French national anthem with this sort of funky kind of jazz beat and rhythm to it. It introduces Europe to jazz. The men were combat ready, but instead of being sent to the front lines, the 369th Regiment was assigned menial tasks such as unloading ships, building barracks, and digging latrines, until a new plan was devised. To satisfy the French who were demanding U.S. soldiers, and also to satisfy U.S. white soldiers who did not want to fight alongside African-American soldiers, 369th is assigned to the French. Unlike the American troops, the French army welcomed the aid of the Hellfighters, and within weeks, they were fighting from the trenches. They stay engaged in combat and fight longer than any other U.S. troops, black or white, 191 days. And they fight with valor, and they fight with distinction. Several of the individual soldiers are awarded the Croix de Guerre, the French War Medal for Distinction in Battle and Service. Although they were honored for their heroism by the French military and were celebrated by the American public upon their return to the United States, the 369th Regiment was not officially recognized by the United States military until much later. In 2015, President Barack Obama recognized the bravery of Henry Johnson, one of the members of the 369th Regiment, and posthumously awarded him the Medal of Honor the nation's highest military award. So that's a pretty cool note on the Harlem Hellfighters and their role in history. That is all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at 
Devon CI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.